what you risk telling your story. You will bore them. Your voice will break. Your ink spill and stain your coat. No one will understand. Their eyes will become fences. Those with power can afford to tell their story or not. Those without power risk everything to tell their story and must. Someone somewhere will hear your story and decide to fight, to live and refuse compromise. Someone else will tell her own story, risking everything as they embrace the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline that we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death? No! Don't save Riley! <laughs> Take her to the moon for me. Okay? Welcome, friends, to Embrace the Void 252, where we are never quite done working out the kinks, apparently. I am your host, Aaron, and my guest this week is Dell on Earth, a longtime friend of the show who I finally got to meet in person in, at the American Atheist Convention. They have a degree in animal science and philosophy and currently own their own dairy farm, as well as working a day job as an animal nutritionist, which seems a little confusing. We'll talk about that. Dell, would you like to say hi to the void? Hey. Yeah, I do want to set the record straight slightly. Generally speaking, an animal nutritionist has a PhD in a specific species of nutrition, and okay. I just have mm-hmm. a bachelor's. I, I do animal nutrition work. So oh, I see. the nutritionists make high-level rules, and then I implement all those rules in the real world with real recipes for real manufacturing plants. And so I'm, I'm doing animal nutrition, but I, 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 I can't really call myself a nutritionist because people in I understand. Would, th- would think I have gone above my station. <laughs> You're not a fancy, effete, academic, capital N nutritionist. You're just one of those applied nutritionists out there in the world actually nutritioning things. Yes. Uh, sometimes they call us like a nutritional analyst, mm. but that's not technically my job title. Nor does that clarify <laughs> anything whatsoever. So congratulations. Um, uh-huh. Thank you so much for coming on. I was really excited to, to get you on to chat. You know, we've talked about a lot of stuff. We've, we've been hanging out online for a long time, as we were discussing before the show, all the way back through the Monster Island days. And yes. you've been on a couple of other shows talking about agricultural, philosophical, and other kinds of things. And so I was excited to you know, pick your brain about that stuff a little bit. We've definitely done many episodes on like animal ethics, but I think you had some interesting takes on some of the the questions in that area. So before we get into all that goodness, do you want to tell folks a bit about your background and how you got into cows and philosophy of cows? (laughs) Sure. So I didn't grow up on a dairy farm. I, I grew up with my mother who was Involved in sort of, she was an agricultural journalist and then ended up kind of in PR for the dairy industry specifically. 
She grew up on a dairy farm, both of her siblings dairy farm, several hours or states away from where I grew up. But she got me involved in 4-H and we started once I was eight and it was determined I was pretty interested. We started doing things like when school got out for the summer, we would drive to one of those farms. We would pick up a couple a couple heifers. We would bring them back home because we had like 10 acres in the country with you know, it wasn't a farm at all. It was just a house in 10 acres. My dad built us a little, a a little lean to for the cows. And then, so every summer I had at least a couple animals that were fully my responsibility. And I knew I wanted, at that point, I made the decision that I wanted a career in the dairy industry. And when I was 14 is when I decided that, uh, despite how much I loved academics, that that career would actually be specifically being a dairy farmer. And so that is when I started working on dairy farms directly and purchasing my own cows and basically running a little enterprise where I, you know, actually, you know, ran it as a business with my cows, even though I was boarding them on other farms. So this was like, you said 14, I think, right? When you started doing I was this 14, activity? Yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, this is your version of a lemonade stand. Um, yeah. And like, how, you know, were you making like, money at that point doing it because i know there's a lot of question about like ever making money anywhere or doing any of this but it wasn't mostly just recreational for you yeah i wasn't like making money so i was tracking income and expenses using the data from like the farms where i was boarding the cows and so you know kind of if that farm made money that year technically on paper so did my cows um and other years they didn't mm-hmm. but mostly what happened is we determined that every summer that I brought them home for the summer and I halter broke them and I fed them and I worked with them all summer that I gained five percent ownership of that animal and so then if I brought them back the next summer I was up to ten percent and then if they had a calf I owned ten percent of that calf and then I would bring that calf back mm-hmm. to my house and I'd be up to fifteen percent then when I graduated high school I traded in all those percents for a whole cow <laughs> That was the ones that I was working with, with my aunt. And then on the side, I was also buying animals that I would send to like either a neighboring farm. It started out as my aunt's farm, ended up at other places throughout my life. But um, anyway, I got my degree. Well, I got two degrees, a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Science, wrapped that up in three years, and then got a job in animal nutrition and did some other things in between, but essentially was able to launch my dairy farm as my full-time career when I was 25, which was Mm. pushing eight years ago now, I guess. (laughs) A short eight years, right? Yeah. A short eight years. Uh, I think it's not, it's about seven and a half years at this moment, um, Mm -hmm. which was great. Did you you feel bad leaving your one, did you feel bad leaving your one whole cow so that you could go off to college? Like a, I did. And so that's level, one of the reasons I, there. <laughs> I brought, well, I had a cow. I had some others that I had bought and those animals had had babies and whatever. I think I had like, by the time I went to college, mm. I probably had like 10, I'm thinking eight or 10 animals. And I brought those to like a closer farm for a while. And then that farm kind of went bankrupt and I had to get them, split them between two separate farms for a bit. And then Anyway, yeah, it's they've been around the block. And so it was so great to finally be able to do like run it myself and have I had worked on farms, but I'd rarely worked on farms where my cows lived. So it was an interesting experience having to learn some new things because I have a rare breed of cows. And so I hadn't actually worked with my breed of cows nearly as much as I'd worked with the dominant breed of cows. And so there were definitely lessons 
to be learned as I was on my own. And uh, anyway, that lasted about five years. I'd never made a cent um, before the money just completely ran out. 2015 was the wrong year to start a dairy farm. Trump was horrible for the agricultural economy. As I would assume he was for all economies, but yeah, of course. Yeah, well, particularly TPP was bad. So anyway, I ran out of money, had to go get a full-time job, butcher about half the cows. And so now I work from like 6.30 in the morning to 8 at night every day. It's great. Yeah. What is the like breakdown on your time in that way? Like, do you... You get up, you milk the cows, and you go to the other job, and you come home and you milk the cows. Is there a lot of like additional stuff that has to get done around the farm? Do you have any help on that front? Yeah, so I do have one hired hand, um, and then my husband does help out a little bit, although he never imagined himself as a dairy farmer, but he's learned, certainly. Uh-huh. And and I can leave for a couple days at a time between my mom, my hired hand, and my husband. You know, They can manage, although nothing ever seems to go quite so smoothly. But yeah, so then usually at least one weekend day, if not both, is going to be a lot of like, oh, we need to get vaccinations. Oh, we need to, you know, move all these animals over here. We need to clean out all these pens. We need to set up these pastures. Mm -hmm. I mean, just like, you know, so I get about half a day off every week, I would say between the fact that you have to milk cows every 12 hours really turns it into such a grind because there is no possibility of getting more than about nine hours without having to work ever. Right. And are you milking them by hand, like every single cow kind of situation? Yeah. I mean, so I don't have robots. Um, Mm -hmm. I, those are about like plenty of people do these days have robots. I don't have robots. Um, so I can milk about 12 cows at a time, which requires some manual setup for each cow. Then you attach the machine, the machine milks them, which takes about five minutes. Um, and then you, uh, what we call post dip them and let them go. And then I have to feed them grain. So like my, mm-hmm. my chores that I have to do every 12 hours take about an hour and a half if I'm by myself. For how many cows? Uh, that is milking 30 cows, which means I have mm-hmm. about 80 animals on the property. Nice. Um, so they're, so, so th- there were some levels there between like what we think of as the old fashioned, like two fingers milking style and like you're hooking up a machine of some sort, but it isn't a robot. What's the robot level that's like different from the machine? So the robot is literally like, I am not around. The cows just like decide when they feel like being milked and they walk into the robot and it milks them and then they walk away. That's a robot. And you just need like one for how many cows? Um, One for about 50 to 65 cows. Wow. So robots are actually one of the things that's it kind of helped the family-sized dairy farm hang on because that's like a very family farm-sized um, idea and it's not really mm-hmm. scalable to a mega dairy size um, just because of like kind of the, the layout that your barn needs to be where you just like plop a robot in the barn and then the cows have to learn where it is and how to get there and how to use it. Um, mm-hmm. So like mega dairies don't tend to have robots i see and you mentioned yeah learning i was curious what your experience has been you've been working with cows for a very long time obviously Uh, what what is your experience of like cows as a as an entity like what level of cognition do you experience with them like do they are there like features of their sort of cow psychology that people might not be aware of that are like a commonplace feature that you deal with all the time kind of stuff yeah, totally. So um, 
should, uh, important to note the difference between dairy cows and beef cows because of the different environments that they're raised in. So dairy cows are much more acclimated to people because we are, especially once they are adults that are making milk, we are touching them like hands on twice a day, every day in a in a way they associate um, positively, right? Like there is significant oxytocin involved in milking cows. And so they have like a very positive association with being milked. Um, like I can literally inject them with oxytocin um, if they are not letting their milk down. So like if a cow is stressed out, she will just like not let her milk down. Like that's not a, you can't like suck milk out of them. Um, she has to be uh -huh. relaxed and like, giving it to you. And I can force that by injecting her with oxytocin, but that's not like, I've only used that in like very specific scenarios. I would say I maybe have to do that once every six months or something, um, to like a cow that's like really stressed out for like some particular reason. Um, usually mm -hmm. it's because she has something going on that milking her will make her feel better, but milking her is painful like mastitis or, um, severe right. edema, which is just a fancy way to say swelling. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a pro health, uh, procedure to do that. But, uh, generally speaking, they're, they're, they're happy to be milked. They're excited to be milked. They want to be milked. Not being milked is uncomfortable. Um, so they have a very positive association with people. Whereas like, beef cattle out on the range don't necessarily have that sort of relationship with people because the only time people are around them generally is if they're like getting vaccinated or something, which isn't a fun right. time for them. Um, but yeah, I would say, and, uh, cows to me, like they're definitely do not seem to be as intelligent as dogs, like not as, as trainable as dogs. Um, mm -hmm. somewhere around maybe like, you know, it's not a perfect spectrum, but somewhere around maybe like, uh, like a very young toddler sort of mm -hmm. situation. Like they're really not able to ever associate a stressful medical procedure with the good outcome from that procedure, for example, or something like that. Right. Right. Um, Was there something in particular that attracted you to working with cows as opposed to chickens or something like, was there a connection you felt there or, or yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> to be honest, I, I kind of just had some more thoughts about this the other day of sort of why I specifically gravitated so much to the challenge of working with such a large animal in particular. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm non-binary. I was assigned female at birth and I experienced just like a lot of misogyny from my peers. And I really had a chip on my shoulder about like, once I decided to get into farming about like, you're not a real farmer and just like absolutely, you know, working my ass off to prove myself and to learn as much as I possibly could. And like, I remember the first time I was like in high school and I knew something that someone that was raised on a farm didn't know, you know, and that mm -hmm. was just like, whoa, like, cause I thought it was like sort of this magical thing that I would never be able to do. Like, I thought I would never be as good as them. Right. Um, but I, you know, I just busted my ass and it turns out like you can live mm -hmm. on a farm and not actually care that much about farming <laughs> as opposed to what I was doing, which mm -hmm. was caring really hard. So were you being excluded more, do you feel like because of the not coming from a family farmer background or because of the gender stuff? Hard to say. I mean, both. It's like mm -hmm. not really possible to disconnect the two. I mean, a lot of, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, both. I don't know. Do you, I don't know how to parse do you think it. That treatment, and you think that treatment had some connection to your own experiences of being non-binary? Or do you feel like you were experiencing being non-binary beforehand? And then that stuff was like... I don't know how did, how did it interact yeah, with, your, no. with your journey on that process. Yeah. So what I was just thinking like over the last few days, actually, um, from listening to a different podcast was about, um, you know, my experience going through puberty and, um, really enjoying like, like horseplay and literally yeah. like wrestling. Right. And like a time that I was literally sat down and told you cannot do that anymore. Um, and my parents were not particularly sexist or traditional or whatever. And I could actually tell that my mom was like uncomfortable having that conversation because she knew there wasn't a good justification for it. And she didn't, she didn't like having to enforce that, but she also didn't know what else to do because she was like, you are like 12, you cannot wrestle with boys. It's just not appropriate. And I was mm -hmm. just like, but why was it okay a month ago? And it's not now. And it's just like, it's just not. It's just not. Uh -huh. And so I was really missing and I've always craved a very sort of physical challenge in the world. Right. And um, halter breaking an 800 pound heifer is a great outlet for that. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's also mm -hmm. a great way to impress people and show people your fortitude. Right. And, and test yourself, you know, like, like, Halter breaking a heifer is a lot like getting a tattoo, right? Or that's the same reason or the same approach that I have about tattoos is like prove to myself I can do it, you know? Put yourself in a mm -hmm. tough spot and and prove you can handle it. Interesting. Do you Yeah, I guess I I that's sort of tricky, right? Because I want to talk about the philosophy and the ethics of this <laughs> stuff as well. And it's sort of like, is that a legitimate motivation for doing something like owning cows or like do, do you need to be doing like owning cows because you care about the cows intrinsically themselves or is it okay for part of your reason to be doing these things because you kind of want to prove that you can because people have told you that you can't oh yeah well and i'm just saying like i think looking back that that is one of the major attractions that i had mm -hmm. to the sort of sort the whole situation right um taking at baseline that i was already a small autistic only child with pets who were my only friends and therefore was extremely into animals right like before it was cows it was dogs like that was my special interest I was obsessed with dogs my dogs were my best friends um you know mm -hmm. so it was just like applying that in a way that you know and that also you know working with cows can be a career in a way working with dogs didn't feel like an accessible sort of deal to me um career-wise, you know. Mm -hmm. You were never attracted to like being a veterinarian or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely thought about it, but I also worked with veterinarians very regularly and I knew exactly what their job was like. And I was like, I'm not right. sure the specifics of that job are for me as far as like, <laughs> small animal vets have to work with people so much. Uh -huh. And so much uh -huh. of wanting to be a farmer was also about my negative experiences with people and wanting to get away from that. Um, and that was really what, what pushed me into feeling so much community with animals. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I just wanted to yeah. have so much, like, I just wanted to have so much community with animals. Right. And like, how can you do that uh, career wise other than being a farmer? Right. Where it's just, it's just can be you and the animals. Yeah. And this is an idea that maybe like some people have come across because we were talking about this before as well. We were discussing like, 
we might cover on the show. And one of the things was neurodivergence and animals and that like this was popularized by Temple Grandin in, you know, thinking in pictures who, and books. Who like I that. should point yeah. out is now um, problematic in the autistic community. So I'm not I am not totally surprised. <laughs> um, I um, saw them out when I was at CSU because um, I was getting my master's at, at CSU and CSU has a giant ag department um, and yes. a bunch of animal ethics folks there as well. Bernie Rollins, who just passed away recently. Um, and yeah, they were doing an animal ethics conference and, and she, or I think she was by, she worked in the uh, ag department there. Um, I haven't, I don't know exactly the details about why, uh, she's now problematic in the autistic community, but yeah, I'm curious about sort of what you think about her work and the impact it's had on the industry, if anything, and, like how that has kind of evolved from the original popular mainstream impressions of it. Yeah. So I think um, for me, the way that I experience autistic is a lot of, hmm, a lot of like, instead of being a fish swimming in the ocean, um, really being able to see that there's water all around, if that makes sense, like kind of feeling separated from our processes and systems that neurotypical people might just sort of automatically perform and therefore take for granted. Um, and so mm -hmm. I think that that is kind of what Temple Grandin did as well, as far as she was, it gives you a skill of sort of like looking at things from the animal's perspective. Like she relates it to more of like cognitive deficits and that she thinks that her brain is more animal-like. And I'm not saying that I'm saying I, mm -hmm. I, I don't know how to put it into words exactly so I, yeah this I, I, I know what you mean yeah yeah so it relates back to something I mean that's kind of like what particularly like philosophers are doing right like you're taking like okay so here's what I'm seeing in the world and now I'm trying to get at the meta level of it right and observe it as an outsider right. sort of um, so it goes back to something you asked me that I didn't get to fully elaborate on when you were talking about the special considerations of cows and sort of their cognitive abilities. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. one of the things that I think primarily informs the disconnect and misunderstanding between what your average man on the street thinks is good welfare for a cow and what a cow actually thinks is good welfare for a cow is that cows are prey animals and we are kind of predators and our dogs and cats are predators. And there is a very different mindset towards novelty and security and freedom that mm -hmm. my personal opinion is heavily driven by the fact that cows are prey animals. And it is very easy to frighten them. And I'm not saying that they don't ever want novelty. They can definitely be right. curious and interested. Um, but it's I think there's more flight than fight. There's more aversion yes. than attraction for sure. Yes. And it's a very different level of, of novelty that is desirable to them than is for, for us or for our pets or for the animals that we spend so much of our time with and thinking about, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you tie that to the sort of neurodivergent stuff. So like, 
I understood what you meant in terms of the differences between claiming that being neurodivergent gives you a different perspective than neurotypical people, and also claiming on top of that, that the neurodivergent mindset is somehow similar to or closer to the animal mindset. And that's why you're able to do X, so that's Y, what Z Temple Grandin animals. claims. Right, like, that's, that, right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So you're saying you're not going that far. You're just making yeah, sort of I, first claim. It seems like. I don't know that I'm like, oh my gosh, that's t- totally incorrect or whatever. I just like, I'm like, nah, I don't, mm, that doesn't really. There's been some pushback for certainly some, yeah. some criticism of, of that um, jump in that way. Yeah, I don't really see that. I see it more as like, I'm constantly trying to practice it's, I, I do absolutely see the theory of mind deficit that is kind of considered a key trait of autism, which is also like somewhat controversial. I just think it's something, theory of mind is something that I have to very consciously practice. Um, and I'm you able mean, to do that. Remembering that there are like other minds kind of stuff or like understanding other minds kind of stuff. Yes. So uh-huh. like, um, like, for example, the studies they'll do is like, um, they'll have autistic and then neurotypical children sit and watch a little thing where one man comes into the room and he puts a ball in a box and then another person comes into the room and the autistic children will not understand why that guy doesn't know there's a ball in the box because they can't it's hard for them to remember that he didn't see the ball get put in the box right does that make sense yeah so so, so not understanding that everyone doesn't share the same first person perspective with the same first person knowledge kind of stuff yes it's it's I think it's something that I have to do very consciously in a way that it apparently neurotypical people don't have to expend a lot of energy doing. And so I think Mm -hmm. because I'm constantly practicing that on a daily basis, because like, you know, you kind of have to, to, to like move through the world. Right. It it gives you like, so I do, I can do the same thing with the cows. Right. Because that's the same thing I'm doing with people all the time. And I think it just gives you practice at a certain type of thinking. If that makes I understand. Sense. Yeah, absolutely. It makes you think about why the other entity is doing the thing it's doing rather than just assuming that it's doing it for the same kinds of reasons that you would be doing that sort of thing, for example. Um, yeah, I, I think that that makes sense. You know, doing it, doing, doing mental construction is an active versus a reflexive process. Right. Well, it reminds me of, I remember saying something about... Uh, I read somewhere that Anthony Hopkins is autistic and uh, a friend said, wow, that that's totally weird to me. Like, I, I, I don't understand how you could be autistic and a great actor. And I'm going, oh, that makes perfect sense to me because yeah. if you're just sort of reflexively going through your life and you're not thinking about all the tiny little things that you're telegraphing with your behaviors, it might not be that easy to fake it. But if you feel like you're constantly having to do that just to walk through your daily life, to watch everyone's patterns and then try to mimic them, like that's what going through daily life is as an autistic person. So you have a ton right. of practice at that. So if that's a like a skill you have like the mental bandwidth for, I totally understand why you can be a great actor as an autistic person. It's kind of like the difference between an athlete who just like is naturally athletic, but never gets coaching to really break it down to its basic levels. Right. Um, versus like an athlete who's like do every single thing that they've done has been like consciously trained and then they're performing. Mm-hmm. It, right. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's just the fact that I've been around actors and have grown up in theater, but I would actually assume the opposite. There's like a, an, a higher percentage of neurodivergent individuals within that community, right. it would seem more likely to yeah, me. Yeah, I think it um, I think it makes perfect sense. Um the mm-hmm. person yeah, 
I think it makes perfect sense. So let's talk a little bit about the philosophy side of stuff where we run out of time, because um, you mentioned <laughs> the animal welfare thing. I think it's a really good topic. And, and I say that I also want to like include a random tangent here, because as we're talking through all of this, there's a story that, that my um, partner and the wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons, um, told me because she was really into studying continental philosophy. And she heard this story. And I think it was about Derrida. Um, I apologize. I'm getting that one wrong. Uh, but it was like a story of Derrida giving like a conference presentation and like no one in the audience could really understand part of it because it sounded to them like he kept saying like the true underlying nature of the universe is cows <laughs> and so they were like cows what does he mean by cows <laughs> and so like like one of them like finally got up the urge to, you know, like, to go ask him like what do you really mean by this and he went oh no no cows 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 so he has this very thick accent he's trying to say chaos and they're all hearing cows <laughs> Um, which I very much loved as a discordian. And also now we, we say that to each other whenever there's like some, something weird happens or something, you know, like it's, it's cows. Um, so whenever you keep saying cows, I'm always thinking Derrida and his <laughs> philosophy of cows. Yeah. Um, cows generally speaking, hate chaos. So, you know, very, yeah, right, very opposed right. to the concept. Cows are the opposite of chaos. Um, so, did you, when you were doing your philosophy degree, was it primarily in like ethics and animal ethics kind of stuff? Or was it like you were interested in a different kind of philosophy altogether from what you're doing with the animal stuff? Um, I was taking honestly kind of just whatever classes fit in my schedule because I, I found it all interesting. And, you know, the biggest thing about getting an undergrad in philosophy is it just teaches you that like you have barely scratch the surface of what is out there in the field of philosophy. And so you probably have no idea what you're talking about. Like, I really enjoyed mm -hmm. doing it, but it absolutely made me think that I do not have the authority to speak on any philosophical, philosophical topic whatsoever, because it's just, it's just so uh -huh. obvious that by taking like 10 classes or whatever, as an undergrad, you just, you don't even you know, I, you know, it's, it's like yeah. most of the philosophers that I studied, I read one book of theirs, right? It's like, that's nothing, you know? Right, right. Yeah. But then again, you're also an applied philosopher now. And I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions for you to pontificate on. So you're just gonna have to set all of that anxiety aside and just, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're non-binary. So just for, for a moment, you know, take on the, the masculine and just pontificate without any, you know, actual background or expertise or anything like that. It'll be totally fine. Um, <laughs> so let me ask you, yeah, we were talking about animal welfare and the thing that we were talking about before the show that I thought was most interesting that you were saying was that like, we all talk about animal welfare all the time. We have a, not a really great idea of what we actually mean by it. And by extension, it seems like not a good accounting of what would actually be better or worse applied for animals. Um, so how do you think about animal welfare? Like, how do you define this concept or what do you think about the attempts out there to define this concept? Yeah. So like the people who actually like study animal welfare have the general framework. It was created in, I think the seventies and it was called like the five pillars of animal welfare. And I honestly, I don't have them memorized off the top of my head. It's like nutrition, environment, health, whatever. The, the fifth one is natural behaviors. Um, it's the ability to express natural behaviors. So um, I think it, experts, mm -hmm. farmers, academics in this field, um, whether it be like academics on like the animal ethics side or academics on like the in the animal science department, right? Um, 
and farmers all agree and the public agree on probably those first four in that we want our animals to be well-fed, um, healthy. Yeah, I brought the list up, by the way, if you want. It's, it's hunger and thirst oh. is the first one. Discomfort is the second one. Pain, injury, and disease is the third one. Uh uh, fear, uh, freedom to express normal behavior is the one you're saying was controversial, yeah. and then the fear and distress one, right? So, yeah, I do think we, I, we would all agree probably on all of those, except for, as you were saying, yeah, yes. go ahead. Except for, um, so those are obvious, right? It's like, okay, farmers, um, animal science, uh, academics, ethical philosophers, um, the average public are all like, yeah, we, we don't want animals to have diseases. We don't want them to be in pain. We um, want them to have adequate nutrition, all of that, right? But I don't know where this the scientific basis comes in. And, and I tried to do just a real basic lit review, actually, in preparation for this, because my impression, being in the field for 10, 20 years, is that like there isn't a lot. And, you know, so I was like, maybe I'm just like totally wrong. And and I truly couldn't find much, um, except for some discussions bringing up the, con- the exact concern that I have, which is that, um, so the public seems to lean really heavily on natural behaviors, right? Like we want cows to be frolicking in pastures, right? Like that is a very intuitive thing that we associate with those other four pillars. Um, even though there's a mm-hmm. lot of like quantitative reasons that that's actually not a good way to achieve the other four pillars, um, being housed outdoors in particular, or, mm. um, in larger pens or in groups versus individually. Um, whereas farmers really focus on the first four pillars and very much see a connection between like cows that make more milk are happy cows with good welfare. And I think the general public thinks cows making more wil- milk is probably a sign that they do not have good welfare. And so mm-hmm. there's this total mismatch where we're like not talking about the same thing. And we, the farmers versus the public have these underlying assumptions that literally go in opposite directions from one another, which is that, Farmers think the faster their animals gain weight, which means the earlier and younger they are butchered, is because they have amazing welfare. Um, whereas the public will say, oh my gosh, you mean that broiler chickens, broiler being the word for meat chickens in the industry, um, go from birth to death in six weeks? That must be awful. Whereas farmers mm. go, look at how amazing we are at providing excellent nutrition and stress-free environments to our chickens that they grow so fast. Do you think that is, though, the genuine reason for why they are growing so fast? Or do you think that that, like, that obscures a little bit of the, like, mad science that's going into creating those broiler chickens that that grow that quickly and, and like, the parts of them that grow particularly large and things like that? Yeah, it can certainly um, bring with it concerns. I've done a little bit of nutrition research with both broilers, laying hens, et cetera. But obviously most of my career has been spent working with dairy cattle specifically. So like, as you get cows that produce more milk and there's, there's constantly several inputs on that, right? So there's genetic selection, there's the nutritional plane, and there is the environment of the animal. Those are like kind of the three 
things that you can really impact to get more production out of an animal. Um, they can, mm -hmm. that high plane of production can bring with it different or new disease concerns or like injury concerns or stress concerns. Um, and like, there's definitely cases where we did some things better, but that had negative impacts on other things. So like, um, and sometimes that's because we were misguided and like, but generally speaking, I think the trajectory is probably mostly the right direction. Um, mm -hmm. we may have gotten a little ahead of ourselves at some points as far as like animals were producing more, but we were not knowledgeable enough to support them as well. Right. But I think overall, although it's not all progressing in perfect unison, it is all going for the most part, it has been going the right direction. So like we are unbelievably better at giving dairy cows good health and nutrition and environment than we were 50 years ago. Like just mm -hmm. incredibly better at it. Like it's, it's really, really cool. Where the, where's much of the like improvement been? Do you feel like, um, so genetics we have been, so there was a point where we were pushing like purely for genetics with milk and we realized we were getting some bad disease stuff along with it. And we were getting mm -hmm. some weak points. Right. And so now we have corrected back and we're working on, and like, it's a work in progress, but we've definitely made progress in the last 10 years on continuing to improve milk production while also continuing to genetically address health problems. But like nutrition and cow comfort, like are incredible. Like we have mm. done so much and you can still see because many farmers are still kind of operating under the same mechanisms that they were 50 years ago. It's not like every farmer is doing the most cutting edge thing because you're not building a new barn every five years when a new piece of research comes out. Um, you're probably not changing your entire nutritional approach. So you can even mm -hmm. see the difference between like old fashioned farms versus newer farms and the 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 welfare of the animals on those farms is is so much better when you're able to implement the newer information that we have out there um we're just we're just so much better at it and what that results in is cows that make more milk um cows that grow faster lower mortality rate um as the cows are growing like especially when they're young and in the case of dairy cows um healthier ovulation cycles and cows getting pregnant hmm more often. And so what that means is the average age of a dairy cow in the US has been going down. And so consumers see that cows usually only live like four and a half years now. And they're like, that's so awful that people are like burning cows out. We're not burning cows out. It's just that there's only so many spots in your barn. And you always, mm -hmm. because we're so much better at taking care of our existing cows, we constantly have young cows ready to take the place of their mother and you only have so much space in your barn so they get turned over more quickly right um so it's just really interesting how so many things that farmers are doing that they're like this is great i'm taking such good care of my animals they're doing so well are things that the public looks at and is horrified by and thinks is an indication of poor animal welfare Right. Though, of course, there's probably a section of them that are going to be concerned about the animal welfare part of what happens to the cows that get, quote unquote, turned over, um, you know. But that's it, so happening the, whether a like cow that. is 10 or 3, right? A well, cow that's, is that's getting butchered well, yeah, and eaten. Right. So let me, <laughs> well, I was going to say, there's, there's a philosophical question here getting into this, like, what does it mean for a cow to have a good quality of life? 
there may be an intuition that some folks have that like a longer life is a better life that like if they're alive for those 10 years then that is a better life for the cow than a life of only four years and even just in terms of pure quantity if not quality or something like that um do you feel like there might be some amount of obligation to the idea that you should let the animal live for its full sort of normal lifespan in that kind of way? I'm like, <laughs> all my brain can think about is like the horrific environmental impacts. If we tried to let all of our cows live to be 12, 13, 14 years old, um, considering mm -hmm. that they give birth every year um, or close to every year, um, which, which is, going back to naturalness, kind of their natural cycle, right? But out in the wild, um, lots of animals give birth every year, but their populations don't explode because, you know, they don't live to be 12, even if in a zoo, they would live to be 12, right? And so, yeah, in our my farm, a, a cow could live to be 12, 13, 14, if I was not going to butcher her at some point. Um, mm -hmm. But unless I purposely kept her from breeding, she would give birth once a year, you know? And so we would just have like a complete population explosion of cows, which right. I guess is fine. I just, the environmental impact of like, if instead of, so like steers generally, like most of where our beef comes from are going to be around like 15, 16 months old, maybe 18 months old when they get butchered. Um, and a dairy cow is going to be yeah, between four and five on average varies wildly. Mm -hmm. I mean, my oldest cow is 10. Um, so it's just like not I'm how not, the system yeah. is set up at all. So it's just hard for me to, to think about like practically speaking how that would work. Yeah. I'm just sort of trying to highlight some of the ethical intuitions. I think what was, what has always been fascinating to me about this kind of stuff is all of these kind of like complicated ethical trade-offs, right? You mentioned mm -hmm. the environmental tie-ins there as well. I know you wrote, um, you mentioned that you wrote your undergrad thesis on like a moral, like an argument for like a moral imperative in favor of using bovine growth hormones, um, which is mm -hmm. going to be com contrary probably to a lot of people's um, intuitions. Uh, do you want to explain that argument sort of, is it just, is it the environmental impact thing as well there? Yeah, I mean, I basically did a lit review of the uh, the human health impact of bovine growth hormone, bovine growth hormone. Um, so the human health impact of bovine growth hormone, which is just there's nothing to it. Uh, pure pseudoscience, as far as I can tell, there doesn't appear to be anything other than like very tenuous basic associations. Um, and then the animal health grounds, which the countries that decided not to approve bovine synthetic bovine growth hormone also called um rbst so recombinant bovine somatotropin is like the the technical term most people just know it by bovine growth hormone but even if you like look at your milk at the grocery store it'll say rbst um so mm -hmm. most of the countries that decided not to approve it um basically said like this is not like helping the animals in any way. Like this is not for a, like we don't have like a great category in most countries for like, you should approve this drug. It's not treating any diseases. It's just like a thing people want to do and it doesn't have any negative impacts and it's a thing people want to do. So you should approve it. Like we don't really like approve drugs for that reason, like just for the heck of it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this was one of the first situations in which that came up in front of governments as like, every country's equivalent of the FDA, right? Is like, 
are you going to approve this? And the literature that was out there at best indicated perhaps a small association of using it with perhaps an increased mastitis risk, perhaps animals that um, had a slightly lower body condition score, meaning they carried a little less weight, and perhaps a small increase in mastitis uh, risk, which is uh, an utter infection. And Mm -hmm. all of those things, however, are just completely associated with the fact that the cows on RBST were producing more milk. So mm-hmm. with more milk comes a higher risk of all those things. And so it wasn't like from the RBST, it was from the fact that they were making more milk, it appeared from the literature. And so there's also a lot of like weird trade stuff, as everybody knows, like dairy is like agriculture commodities and especially dairy are kind of like a hot button issue in like inter-country politics about like trade protectionism and stuff. And so it's also by not approving this was a a way that many countries could do a protectionist thing on behalf of their own farmers where they could say, well, now we're not going to buy any milk from the U.S. because the U.S. allowed this and we didn't. Mm, Um, And so that was a big motivating factor for a lot of countries. Um, And so I basically did a lit review on that stuff and said, you know, there's really nothing here that justifies, like, it's not some horrible animal welfare implication. There's no human health implication here. Um, And it increases the efficiency of milk production by 10%, meaning you need 10% fewer resources to create the same amount of milk. And if we presume that nobody's going to turn vegan overnight here and people are going to continue to consume dairy products, in fact, worldwide consumption of dairy products is growing everywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. pretty much even in the u.s because we yeah. love cheese we may be drinking less fluid milk but we love cheese and we love yogurt. why is cheese um, so expensive in america this is a question that we have whenever we go to the grocery store i feel it seems to me that like relative to other countries that i've been in america has particularly expensive especially like if it's not you know yellow cheddar or something like that you know honestly no idea not, no reason yeah not not sure i mean i think americans in general there's like a little bit less demand for the fancy cheeses right we're like pretty pretty satisfied with our just like churn out the basic I, cheeses it's our own so fault. Maybe, we have terrible palate i get it yeah i'm guessing that's probably probably part of it you know the only people going for the fancy mm. cheeses are the are the fancy people right so of course they'll pay so more you know, 12 dollars for a thing of brie yeah. um because half I... of americans don't know what brie is um right. that's wild um yeah i just want some <laughs> pledge, and i can't anyway um no i think there's a really fascinating to me philosophical question here because i do think you're right that a lot of people who don't know the science of any of this use as a proxy for animal welfare something like normalcy right it's something kind that of makes intuition. them feel good i think i think it's something that makes them feel good they like it's pretty right. to see cows out in pastures and you know oh yeah i think that's a part of it too i was just also going to say that i think it's um you know if we're trying to co- answer the question when is it when, when are we treating them well one answer might be when they're acting the exact same way that they would if we weren't interacting with them at all or something like that right like you're trying to have like a a zero footprint interaction with them and you're trying oh, to see that how that's so you know, in that behavior do you, th- do you think so do you think like there's something to, to that i, I, I oh, agree yeah, so but i do think that like that it's sort of a like 
you know, it, we can justify this as long as we're like letting them live unmolested up until the point when we eat them or something like that. And this is like a way to measure if they're being, you know, sufficiently unmolested because they're acting as if they would be if we weren't there poking and prodding them and stuff like that. I mean, that might be what people are kind of doing in their heads because they haven't thought about it very hard. But like, I think once you think about it very hard, that falls apart pretty quickly. I mean, that's, we don't think our dogs have better lives if we never interact with them. Right. Like, I mean, there actually are like right. a few people we, out we, there we that kind of think yeah. that, right. Um, we keep but them I for mean, different reasons in theory. So, yeah. Um, but like, that's not um, like, we don't see human interaction as negative in that way. And I think, I think mm-hmm. if we think about it too hard, most of us understand that like, um, or once you think about it, or once you kind of know things about farming, I mean, if you have like the baseline idea that all farms are like torturing animals by like, some people think that like cows are hooked to milking machines like all day or something like now it's it's five minutes twice a day. Um, like once you have like a baseline understanding of what farms are doing, it's pretty obvious that that's a more comfortable life than if they were wandering around in nature, like significantly mm-hmm. more comfortable, like, um, right. The, the plane of nutrition, like they're getting fed way better. Like I have a, a PhD nutritionist that, that does the rations for my dairy cattle. And that's like super common. A lot of people have their, their nutritionist out like weekly to calibrate the nutrition of their animals, um, on uh-huh. larger farms. I'm, I'm only about monthly cause it's a little smaller and because I have a nutrition yeah. background myself. Um, you know, my, my veterinarian is here monthly. A lot of places have their veterinarian weekly, depending on how many cows they have. Like there's a whole team of experts going into the welfare of these animals, right? And keeping everything as good as we can in, until we decide to butcher them, right? And if, mm-hmm. if we're all agreeing that they're going to get butchered eventually, then you know, I think it's quite obvious that the lifestyle they're living is significantly better than it would be if no humans were interacting with them at all. Right. And I I do want to spend a second on the like, should these entities exist at all? But just to sort of drill down on this normal, natural question a little bit more, um, you know, you you keep saying sort of like, it might seem obvious. Do you want to give like a a quick, like uncontroversial example of a situation it doesn't necessarily have to involve cows it could be another farm animal if it's easier where like our intuitions about what will be normal or natural for them unquestionably contravene their well-being in some way yeah so i mean if you just like turn cows out on like prairie grass um that is not remotely the amount of calories that they need. Like they will literally get tired before they can consume enough calories to support themselves. Um, Mm -hmm. And they will definitely not have balanced nutrition. Like they will not have enough protein in their diet for sure. Um, Vitamins and minerals will be a little iffy. Um, You can have things like grass tetany, which is a magnesium deficiency. That's really common. And you have to really watch for, I wouldn't say it's common because we are good at dealing with it now, but was common 50 years ago or a hundred years ago, uh, magnesium deficiency was really common be- in the spring because, um, mm-hmm. young grass does not have a lot of magnesium in it. Um, depending on the age of the grass, you can have way too much protein when it's very young and little, you can have generally speaking when it's older, not nearly enough, uh, protein. And I've heard some like folks that are into organic say that like, cows can tell exactly what nutrition they need. And if you just like give them enough choices, they will just like make all the right choices. And that's not true. Um, 
if you put grain in front of cows, they will eat it until they die, which is actually not very okay. difficult to do at all. It only like well, if my like cows, small children in this way. Yeah. So that's what I mean is like, for me, so much of yeah. dealing with cows is very much at like a very young toddler level, right? Like they, they're not really able to understand what's good for them in a long-term kind of way at all. And by long-term, I mean in the next hour, you know? Right. And well, and this brings up another sort of problem of, of what we mean by normal here, which is, you know, my, my initial reaction is to ask in response, like if I'm playing, you know, uh, cow's advocate yeah. here or something, right? <laughs> like, is, is that problem that you're describing just because we've domesticated them where they need all these extra calories because we've souped them up to do X, Y, Z or something like that. But then we have this sort of problem of, the reality is these are highly domesticated animals. What does it mean for what is normal behavior for a highly domesticated animal? How do you assess that? Do you go out and look at like wild cows somewhere and like see what they're doing? Do they give you a list of like uh, normal behaviors? Like it seems like a very difficult thing to actually implement beyond like really obvious extreme examples. Like they're acting really wildly or something, right? Something really far outside the bounds of their normal, what we think of as their normal behavior. Yeah. So some of it is definitely because like their genetic makeup right now demands certain things, right? Um, like mm -hmm. just like really high level sort of observation from my time in the, the dairy industry. Like, I don't know if there's actually like papers measuring this, but it seems quite obvious to me from my hands-on experience. So like 95% of the dairy cows in the U S are Holsteins. And so they have been the most intensively genetically improved. Um, I have Ayrshires, so they're more of a heritage breed, kind of fell out of fashion about 100 years ago. Um, it is very, uh, and I've had some Holsteins on my farm or Holstein crosses. Um, Holsteins have a genetic sort of predisposition to continue making milk, even at hazard of their own health or some of their other biological processes, like ovulating, for example. Um in a way that Ayrshires, which is what I have, don't tend to do that. They tend to, hmm. more often, if they get sick, they will just like stop producing milk today. And that will be my warning sign. And they will kind of stop metabolically, handle their shit, and then may or may not start making milk at a high level again, right? Whereas a Holstein may genetically speaking, have more of a predisposition to continue to milk instead of sort of like redirecting her body's calories, which makes it all the more imperative that we keep that extremely high plane of comfort, freedom from distress, and, and adequate nutrition for her. And that's mm -hmm. because we bred her that way, right? Um, so I definitely think that some of that is because we have selected animals in a certain way so that, yeah, you take this really genetically selected animal and you toss them out onto the prairie. They would not do as well. I mean, honestly, I think my Ayrshires would certainly survive, but I don't know. I don't see any reason to think their welfare would be better. And so like, I should say, like I have a primarily grazing dairy farm, but I look at farm and that's mostly because it's, it's kind of what I have. It's, it works well with Ayrshires. Um, it's what I had available to me, financially speaking. The The dairy farm that I bought didn't really do that, but their barns were built in the 50s. And like those barns to me are obviously cruel. Like they are not, they are not designed well for animal health or welfare. And there's also issues with like the manure storage system and runoff. Like it's mm -hmm. not a good place. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so my cows are actually outside all winter, even here in Minnesota. But to me, it's very obvious that that's actually a better situation for them than the barns that I have available. And I certainly don't have half a million dollars to build a modern dairy barn. So this is what I'm working with right now. But I look at modern dairy farms and I am jealous because they can provide, in my opinion, better welfare for their cows than I can. Um, animals, and, and I, um, I have a paper for your notes, like specifically discussing the negative welfare concerns of keeping ruminants like cows outdoors. Um, there's a significantly higher disease risk. Um, there's, there's predation risk, there's stress levels. Um, nutrition is a lot harder to keep dialed in well, because you don't exactly know what they're eating every day. Right. It depends on the elements. You can't do any heat abatement. Um, you know, they've done research, like cows actually don't really like to be outside during the day necessarily. Hmm. Um, like Mm -hmm. they might want to be outside at night sometimes, but like, if you give them a choice, they would rather be inside during the day. And um, I think that's a little counterintuitive to people because they think yeah. like cow- cows belong outside, right? Right, for sure. Uh, so we're running, we're running a little short on time and I still have to torture you and stuff. Uh, there's a sort of final move that I think a lot of folks would want to make here, which would just be like, why are we, why is it ethical to have these cows at all? Why not just get rid of all of these cows and require that everybody switch to vegetarian or or vegan or something like that. But since you're, you know, actually doing this thing yourself, I, I, you know, I think there's a personal version of that that is worth talking about, which is like in owning and maintaining the lives of these sentient beings, do you think about the consent issues at all, right? You and I are both far on the left. We care a lot about consent. Um, you know, when I look at Voltaire, our puppy, I often, you know, sometimes think about like how he doesn't get to choose where he goes and when, and like when he gets to hang out with his friends and stuff like that. Um, does that sort of scale up when it comes to like a whole herd of cows? And how do you think about like the ethics of deciding all of these things for your cows? Yeah, a couple different ways to look at it. Um, so step one is, um, I think if we were to build a the most efficient and sustainable food system that had like the least impact, the least negative impact on the world that made the most like supported the most humans that would be supportable. At this point, I think it would involve animal agriculture because they maybe not the way we're doing it now, but in a way like they would still have a role mm. to play because especially ruminants are able to take things that are not food for humans, like that would give us Mm -hmm. virtually no nutrition um, and make it into things that are highly important nutrients that people do need, right? Um, When it comes to protein for the most part. Um, And so I think if you were to like, just like redo and build the perfect system, I think there would be a small animal agriculture component to it. Probably not the way we do it now, probably a lot smaller than the way the American diet is composed right now. But I think it would be, it would have its place in a perfectly sustainable system. Um, And even we are not doing that, but even in the world that we have today, um, people are not going to stop eating cheese tomorrow. Like that's just not gonna happen. And also I'm, I am a a bit of a speciesist. I think that, you know, providing humans with food is a worthwhile endeavor. Um, So like, Mm -hmm. I'm happy to be providing 
food for people. I wish that I could have ever made a single cent doing it. Like I wish I didn't work a million hours a week for absolutely nothing, even though my farm feeds like supplies the dairy consumption of like 220 people, 220 mm-hmm. average Americans a day. Like that's how many people yeah, I we haven't even gotten to here. talk about the like how how <laughs> farmers work and, and don't make money and it's a whole terrible system that we're all living off of. But yeah. Oh yeah, there's plenty you, there too. So, and and like yeah. I'm, I am sympathetic to like anti-natalist arguments um, when it comes to humans. Like I do not want to have my own children, um, but I, I just. But you're not anti-natalist about your cows. <laughs> yeah, so the whole system kind of, it kind of exists, and I feel fairly good. I've always been kind of like a change from within the system rather than burn the system down kind of person. Like that's just like my general approach to a lot of things. And so I feel like I'm making positive impacts by what I'm doing right now, Um, particularly Mm -hmm. by being an example for a lot of people that historically have been excluded from farming. And because I think that like humanity will be better if the people who are working in our food systems are coming from interesting and diverse backgrounds and are choosing to be there and not aren't just like the firstborn son of the guy who happened to own the farm right you're you're, so you're arguing for intellectual diversity in our farming communities is what you're saying you're arguing (laughs) for heterodoxy uh yeah no so do you like give your cows a choice ever is what is sort of what I was thinking about the consent question. You were talking about your shitty barn versus keeping them outside all winter. Do you like give them the choice to like go sleep in the shitty barn if they want to? Yeah. So like parts of the barn are open, but like I don't put bedding down in there. So they would like pretty much never choose to lay on the cold concrete as opposed to the nice straw that I have outside. Uh, the only time they'll do that is if it's like, um, if it's nothing. like, unbelievably windy or like really cold drizzle like like super cold like 30 degrees fahrenheit sort of precipitation situation um then they'll kind of like huddle up um under the roof just because um they're actually more likely to do that if i were to allow them in the barn during the summer because they want the shade but it would actually be worse for them because when they huddle together like cows are constantly generating heat because their first stomach is a giant fermentation vat um So they will huddle together because they all want to be in the shade, but that will actually make them hotter, but they're not smart enough to really figure that out because they will just like steam up the, the room and it's really gross. So I actually like lock them out Mm -hmm. of the barn in the summer because they would make it worse for themselves. Fair enough. All right. Um. So (laughs) last question, and then I got to torture you. What sort of resources would you recommend for folks who wanted to learn more about this sort of stuff besides spending their life slowly accruing cow percentages? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there are a couple interesting bloggers out there, and I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with everything they have to say, but if you want to get some insight on like how your average dairy farmer is thinking, um, Dairy Carry is an interesting blog to follow pretty, pretty open and honest and, and down to earth as far as like, I don't think I'm particularly unique in my approach to animal welfare and my like general drive to hope that my animals are having a good life. And that when they make a decent amount of milk, or that giving them a good life will result in more profits or more milk. Um, 
-hmm. and vice versa. Like if they are milking well, it shows that I am doing well. Like that's a pretty, like that is the normal mindset. And I think a lot of the data does bear it out. Um, And so just like getting in our heads a little bit as instead of having it be a bit of a caricature of either like your neighbor who grazes cows the old fashioned way, who's a great person versus like the factory farmer down the street, who's horrible and evil. And instead just like showing kind of the, the average normal farmer and what they're thinking and how, how they're going about their day and how they're Mm -hmm. making their, their choices on what they do. Um, And then I'm also going to send you, yeah, that, that paper um, about like, you know, really detailing the welfare concerns and how we can mitigate them with what we call extensive housing, right? So the opposite of factory farming, essentially like giving animals access to the outdoors and it it focused on ruminants. Um, But yeah, I didn't, I, there's this, you know, the whole idea of like the natural behaviors thing. I, there's also an interesting paper out there that's trying to fall on the side of that is still a really important pillar for us to keep. Um, and I wasn't terribly convinced by it um, because mm-hmm. I think that the other four pillars can handle and can encompass anything that comes up in the fifth pillar because there's right. nothing particular about naturalness that makes it a positive or a negative. Um, because no matter what we're doing, we're going to be measuring some sort of outcome in the other four pillars, like they're less stressed right. it's, it's, or whatever. It gives us epistemic access at most, right? It just tells us that something is going wrong in one of the other four pillars at best, it seems like. Yeah, I think, I think if I had to like, just having, you know, not having sat down and written a paper on this, you know, just sort of mulling it over in my head, I think it might give us an idea of where to look at and try some things that are different Mm -hmm. from what we might be doing now. Like the way that like studying a hummingbird's wings may be, lead to some interesting insights on how to build drones that are energy efficient. Right. But there's nothing you would never say like a drone is better because it's based on the natural design of hummingbird wings and it's more natural. It's flight system is more natural and therefore that's a better. <laughs> many, drone. many like, people not... would, but yeah, I understand what you're saying. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a fallacy to be that obsessed with the natural. I agree. I understand. Right. Um, And so I think our other pillars really encompass that, but people have a very, your average person has a very emotional reaction to that fifth pillar, which really mm -hmm. overrides the other four and kind of pushes people into literally supporting something they disagree with. When it, when you think about things like organic agriculture, where like medicine isn't allowed, only homeopathy is, you know, hmm, that's right. I think people end up supporting something that they they actually don't want to support because we're being a bit misled and certainly marketing has played a, a huge role in that too. Yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit about that in the <laughs> VIP. But unfortunately now, despite all of this lovely commentary, I have to torture you. So this is the enlightening round two, Trolley Boogaloo. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. Uh, I know you you changed it just before I finally got on the podcast. I know. So. Well, you've been practicing for so long. It wouldn't have been any fun. You'd have had all your answers ready mm-hmm. to go. Now, th- this mm-hmm. one is still a work in progress. So I will appreciate you to vocalize your sufferings for the purpose of science and all that. Um, so 
For folks who are not familiar, in this round, I'm going to give you a series of trolley problems, and you are going to tell me whether or not you should pull the lever. Okay? So we're looking for what you should do in this situation. Uh, this is assuming in all these situations, unless I say otherwise, that these are innocent strangers. Um, are you ready? Mm-hmm. Got your lever muscles all warmed up? Mm-hmm. Okay, so first one. Should you pull the lever and save five people by killing one? Classic yes. trolley. Yes. You should. All right. In that case, right, should you save five by pulling the lever and causing a machine to shove someone onto the tracks to save the other five? Yes. Okay. Now, should you save yourself by killing one? No. All right. Then, if no, would you save yourself by letting, should you save yourself by letting another person die? So let's imagine that you're on the track that the, the uh, side track, and all you have to do is not pull the lever. No. No. So you would, wait, you think you're wait, obligated no. to. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. You're, yeah. Yeah, no. Sorry, clarify clear, clear what you mean. You're saying <laughs> you should sacrifice my, yourself. Yes, consistent with my last, yes, you should sacrifice yourself. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Then should you save your favorite body of artistic work by killing the artist? No. Okay. What about save a body of revolutionary scientific work by killing the scientist? No, you should not kill the scientist. Right. Okay. Um, what about save the only existing sentient AI by killing one human? No, don't kill the human. No? What if it turned out that you were the sentient AI? Should you still... still don't kill the still human. Still don't. Okay. Uh, what about... Save a random non-human animal by killing one human. No. Okay. What about save your favorite non-human animal by killing one human? The individual no. animal you love the most in the world. No. What about saving an entire species of your favorite non-human animals by killing one human? See, these are the, this we're getting to the parts that I was really dreading. Uh, <laughs> no okay what about saving an entire ecosystem by killing one human i've 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 literally been dreading this particular one for like a week <laughs> yeah no okay you have survived how do you feel awful <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel guilty about your radical speciesism? Is that the problem? Yeah. It's, I just, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. We're going to get so canceled in the cult for that. I know. Uh, no, this was great, Del. I really appreciate this. Um, let, we'll talk more about the torture in the VIP <laughs> room. Um, but we are over, so let me ask you to um, I just, let I really know. felt. I really felt like yeah. I could have survived in lightning round one without being canceled, but I knew there was no way I would survive in lightning round two without being canceled <laughs> by all my friends yeah. in the cult. I appreciate you since lots of people have been like, oh, you're getting rid of round one. So I appreciate you helping me make round two thoroughly entertaining. Is this um, is this entertaining? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This okay. is the good stuff. Good. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you want to then let folks know where they can find you and your stuff one more time? I guess, you know, do you have a dairy farm website? <laughs> do you have other, uh, other things you want to share? Yeah. So, I mean, in general, this is my, this is my skeptic queer atheist movement pseudonym. This is not my legal name. Uh, you can't like look up my thesis under this name or anything interesting. I just try to keep it sort of not Googleable because, um, being a queer atheist who needs to have farmers like them so that they buy my cows, I was a bit, and like get hired at companies. I didn't want mm-hmm. too much of my personal life revealed that way. And being a person who has a dairy farm, um, literally, if you just knew my first name, you could just find my cell phone number and address like on the internet. So I've just tried to keep a little bit of basic separation there. Like, I, you know, if anybody like literally wants to like verify my credentials, I will tell you my legal name. I just don't want it like Google, Googleable on the internet. Um, yeah, so I haven't done a whole lot. I did a podcast for a while called Skeptarchy. There was an interesting episode about um, organic agriculture and some of its tie-ins with um, fascism and Nazism, which was rather interesting. Mm. Um, I've guested on The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Their February 3rd live stream was a lot of fun if you actually want to see what my farm looks like. Um other than that, I've just been around. I've been a guest on Secular Soup a number of times, and um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm forgetting show. any other ones. So yeah, I've 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 been around a little bit. You can friend me on Facebook. I tend to like mass accept random requests when I'm feeling charitable, um, because right it's uh, a fairly safe place to do that. So other than that, yeah. Great. Well, thanks. We should definitely get you back on to talk atheism and fascism and farming because those are both interests of mine as well so but yeah del thanks so much i appreciate it and folks you know stick around come hang out chat a little bit more as a human i was ill-equipped to thank you but as myself you have my everlasting gratitude thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible gonna shout out all the new patrons who joined us while we were away this summer and i'm gonna try to be better about shouting them out by tier level though i don't have weird audio clips yet maybe we'll work on that uh, thanks to our newest monthly voidlings, Pijnali Nali, Dennis Mel- uh, Melser, Bradley Wall, Mike, Chris Clark, and Ian from Wine Country, who pulled double duty this summer as both guest and patron. Check out his episode if you haven't. Um, thanks to our new monthly avouts, Timothy Connolly, and this one's a big one, our new monthly patron, seriously yodeling into the void during this thunderstorm because I couldn't find the glory hole. 
in the biz, we call that a super listener. Uh, we've also got some new yearly patrons to thank. Thanks to our new yearly voidlings, Evan the Wrestler and Catherine Searcy. And thanks to our new yearly avout patrons, Robin and James Pulver. If you started supporting us over the summer and haven't heard your name, please email me and let me know so I can give you the proper shout out that you deserve. And as always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Alex Beneshek, Jay Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, Neil Polzin is now an elected official. Learn more at neilcovina.com, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, and all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. Thank you all so, so much for sticking with us. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons's Filmed Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter how you feel about Kaus, you are the void and the void is you. Thank you.